Well, if you have children here tonight, and this is your first time here at Artisan, uh, we just like to say that children are always welcome in our sanctuary here. And uh, we do have a special program for our kids in the morning, if you would like to take part in that. And uh, we also have an audio-video room down at the other end of the building, if you should need such a room at any point during the, the message today. Uh, but that's your choice. We're not forcing you there. Welcome to... Walking the line, the second week. This week we're going to walk the line between uh, sacred and secular. And uh, Mike, I, was that was that rift there at the end? Was that sacred or secular? That was holy. Yes, it was. <laughs> well, it's it's been a wonderful series so far, and. Last week, we had Pastor Jason talking to us about walking the line between silence and violence, and really what we're called to do is be subversive, and that was a very, very poignant, very pointed message, uh, very convicting, I hope, to all of us here. And uh, this week, we're going to walk the line between sacred and secular, and next week, Pastor Scott's going to lead us in a time where we walk the line between pleasure and pain and it's going to be a great, great time in God's Word and together. So, uh, but this week, we're going to focus on walking this line between sacred and secular. And just to, anybody can shout out, what, when I say the word sacred, what, what do you think of? What are some of the things that you think of? Just shout it out. God, okay. The Bible. What else? Church. Church. I'm sorry? Art and ground. So sacred ground, okay. Holy space. Life. Life being sacred. Mm -hmm. How about churchy things? What are churchy things? So as we think about these sacred and secular things, you know, it's interesting to think about and ask the question, what makes these sacred things sacred? And what makes secular things secular? Many times we use that term secular as we're talking in our Christian circles about music. Oh, it's secular music versus Christian music. And uh, what does that mean? What does that mean to us? As we look in Scripture, is there a defining line? Is there some guiding principle where we can think about sacred and secular and what does it all mean. Things like just the idea of having a a church building where we come together as being a sacred space. We need to understand that a lot of things that we consider as sacred are that way, not necessarily because they are more holy than anything else, but simply because they're old. And we've always done it that way. So things like church, the, the church building itself, the design of a church building from basically the basilica up through the, the big whole Gothic arches and things like that, all of that stuff is taken from paganism. It's taken from Roman architecture, the, starting in the Byzantine uh, design phase, where basically what these were were halls of justice and worship halls and so Constantine basically took these and said, well, we'll just start having our Christian worship services in them. And so the, the area up here that's the stage 
that in some churches would have an altar on it or, or a big chair. The, the big chair is where the pastor sits and all the little chairs are where the little deacons sit, you know, and then, then everybody else is in a pew and uh, immobilized so you can't move about. And uh, all that is taken from this pagan design where a teacher would come up and speak his knowledge. In fact, the very thing that I'm doing right now, a pastor, you might think that this is a sacred role, being a pastor, and that the person comes up and gives a, a sermon, and that the sermon is sacred. Well, that comes from people like Aristotle, and this time where rhetoric was used as entertainment and teaching. And so you'd get a person that would come up, and they would exposit from the works of Homer, and teach, from the peop- teach the people from the works of Homer. Well, we just changed that around a little bit. We still got the, pat- the teacher sitting up here, and instead of Homer, we're expositing from the Bible. One of the most sacred holidays that we have, Christmas. Oh, my goodness. Christmas is basically a pagan holiday to the sun god. Things like a Yule log and a Christmas tree. Ever wonder where they come from? Well, the pagan ritual was that they would burn this Yule log and they symbolized the sun dying. And then in the next day, they would erect an evergreen tree as a sign of rebirth or new life. And so the sun would start to be born again. And so the days would start getting longer. They were off by a couple days, you know, December 25th, December 22nd, when actually the winter solstice is. But what we know as Christmas, one of our sacred holidays, is pagan. Ever wonder why we have bunnies and eggs on Easter? It's a worship of the goddess Eshtoreth. It's a fertility symbol, fertility rite, a time when we celebrate new birth, new life, being fertile. We like to think that we make things more holy, more sacred, like Halloween. And so instead of putting on costumes and running around and stuff like that, we have harvest parties in our Christian churches. Do you understand that having a harvest party is actually more akin to what the original Druids did with the, with the holiday on Halloween on October 31st? So we try to spruce it up, we try to make it Christian, and sometimes we make it even more pagan and secular. So where is the line? What is sacred? What is secular? As I was thinking about this, I reflected back on what people view as sacred and secular and where they get their understanding and where they get their uh, knowledge about God from. And... I remembered a time when I was uh, in the first church that I was on staff at, and I was teaching a, a class. It was called the retirees class. And most of these people had been Christians longer than I had been alive. And it was very intimidating. But it was interesting to see where they got their truth from. For instance, I was teaching about Abraham and Isaac. And I was teaching the, the idea that Scripture is largely unclear as to how old Isaac was when Abraham took him up the mountain to sacrifice him. 
And you see, the story of Abraham and Isaac is, is a picture, it's a foreshadowing of what another father was going to do with his son and when he brought him and did sacrifice him. And so if these pictures line up, the, the dates of birth and the ages of Isaac, he could be anywhere from 13 years old to somewhere around 30. And if these pictures line up, he was more likely closer to 30 because that would have been more of a symbol and an image and a foreshadowing of what Christ did and how old Christ was when he was sacrificed. And so I taught this to my class, and one kindly lady raises her hand, and she said, Brian, I have to disagree with you. I said, okay, what brings you to that point? Well, when I was a girl in Sunday school class, we had a felt board. And on that felt board, Isaac was 13. He was a boy. So apparently, her truth, her way of discovering God's word and what he's telling us is from felt boards. The sacred felt, felt board. So where do we get our truth? And more than that, where, how do we tell other people the truth of God? Because, you see, in our world, we get the people that are outside the family of Christ. And we are trying to reach them with this message, this good news, that you can have freedom and find peace and be right with God. And the means by which we do it, by, the means by which we bring this good news is often from what we call sacred points of view. So we try to read scripture. We stand out on street corners with our bullhorns and shout at people the word of God. And we wonder why the world doesn't respond the world doesn't trust what we call sacred. I mean, you just have to read the headlines and go back and look at the news and see where evangelists have ripped off thousands of people with millions of dollars. You see where clergy has abused their power and have taken advantage of young children sexually. So there's a great distrust of things sacred or what most Christians would consider sacred. So how do we tell people, how do we talk to them about Christ? How do we share the good news of Jesus? Do we tell them when we go out to our clubs that if the beat overrides the melody, it is of the devil? How many people have ever heard that? If the beat is, overrides the melody, it is of the devil. I swear to you, I kid you not, I was listening to Christian radio and he literally said, if the beat overrides the melody, it is of the devil. It's right there in Hezekiah chapter 3 verse 4, I believe. Is where it is. Hezekiah is not in the Bible. But somehow he, he, through divine inspiration, I guess, if the beat overrides the melody, it is of the devil. So we have wonderful artists and musicians that are sharing their gift and we tell them that their gift is not scriptural. Their gift is not sacred. 
we've gotten response cards here in our church asking us if the guitar solos are really necessary because they're not sacred. Well, what is sacred? What is secular? Can't a person praise God through the arts? Can't a person praise God with a five-minute guitar solo? <laughs> Mike is giving me the, the nod that it is possible. So what is sacred and what is secular? How many people, when you, those of you that have made the decision to follow Christ, for, talk to you for just a minute, how many of you, when you made that decision to follow Christ, were told that you had to throw away, burn, or otherwise dispose of all your non-Christian music? How many people did that? Okay, how many people were the ones that said, I'll take all your non-Christian music if, if you want to give it away. Okay, there's a few people that actually admit to that. So uh, some people got some great stuff. Some people got some of my stuff, which I'm really upset about. And uh, going to have to uh, continue to forgive over that. But it really does beg the question, what is sacred and what is secular? And how do we talk to people about Jesus Christ? How do we talk to them about God? And I think a great way to do that is let's look at how Christ and his followers talk to other people about himself and how his followers talk to people about Jesus and the good news. How was it done? So just shout it out. What did Jesus use to tell people about God, about the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is like what? Anybody? Shout it out. A mustard seed. What else? Sheep. What else did he use to teach? A lost young boy, a, a, a runaway son, a coin, a lamp. A Samaritan, a good Samaritan, if you can imagine such a thing. These are the things that Jesus used, the everyday. What many people today would consider secular, the worldly stuff Jesus used. When Jesus dealt with the sacred, what did he do? When Jesus was dealing with the sacred, he was usually dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he was usually telling them off or trying to correct them, showing them where they were wrong. What about Jesus' followers? How did they tell people about Christ? How did they tell them the good news? If you have your Bibles with you, there's some on the floor. If you don't have one with you, I invite you to open it up to Acts chapter 17. Probably one of the most beautiful pictures of how one of Christ's followers, the Apostle Paul, talked to people about God. It's in the New Testament following the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. And we're going to be in Acts 17. The words are also going to be up on the screen uh, so you can read along. Let me set the stage for you just a little bit here. Paul is in Athens. Athens is named after the Greek goddess Athena. Another name for her is Athena Nikeo, which just means the, she was Athena, the goddess of war, 
And Nikeo means conqueror. So if you ever wonder where your Nike shoes get their name from, that's where it's from, and it means conqueror. So Athena Nikeo. So he's in this city dedicated to the goddess of war. He goes up to this mountain, this hill. It's called Mars Hill or the Areopagus. And Mars is the bringer of war, the god of war. He's in the city dedicated to war, on the mountain of the god of war, and he's going to bring them the good news of Jesus Christ. But he has one thing going for them, and what I encourage you to do is read all of Acts 17. We're only going to be in a few verses here today, but take this home. Read all of Acts chapter 17. Paul realizes that his advantage is that the Athenians love to hear new stuff. They are the early adopters. All the Athenians, if they were alive today, would be wearing iPods and carrying iPhones. They are the early adopters. They like new stuff. They like to hear new things. The other thing that they have going on is that they have idols everywhere. And Jason did a great, great job last week talking about how in our modern context, it's very akin to branding and marketing. And they were branding their gods. And so Paul was looking around at all the different idols and the gods and the altars and the brands. And that's where we pick up our story. So let's look at Acts chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, and also uh, verse 28. So Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he goes on and he talks to them about God. And in verse 28 he says, For in him we live and we move and we have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. That verse, we too are his offspring, is from a poet by the name of Aratus. And it is from a poem that Artus wrote to the god Zeus, the sun god. Now, I don't think that Artus, when he was writing this poem to the god Zeus, was thinking about Christians and how they could apply the, the father of God the Father and the son of Jesus Christ, that he was thinking that when he wrote these words. But Paul, knowing that the Athenians like to hear new stuff, And if I'm going to connect with these people that have no concept of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they have no understanding. So if I'm going to reach them, I'm going to have to start where they are. I'm going to have to talk to them in a way that makes sense, in a way that they would understand. And so I look around and I see idols. I look around... And I hear people talking about the latest poetry, the latest philosophical idea. And so Paul says, I'll start there. 
And he just doesn't do it here. In Titus, he also quotes this writer, Epimenides. He's a, he's a Cretan poet. And here in Acts, that verse about we live and move and have our being, that's Epimenides. In Titus, he talks about him again. So Paul, I can imagine in his teaching, talks about the cultural stuff of the day. The idols and the poets of Paul's day, I would say, are very similar to the movie producers and musicians of our day. Or if you don't like the movie producers, then the marketers of our day. The people that design TV commercials. That's what Paul is using to talk to people about God, about Christ, about being born again, a new life in Christ. Again, read the whole part of Acts 17. You'll see how Paul weaves this all together masterfully and says, you know this one that we're talking about that we live and move and have our being and we are its offspring? Well, that one is God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. And because Jesus was dead and rose again, we can all be born again. We can all have new life and eternal life in Christ. See, the problem that we have is that we so often divide things into categories. And so we have the sacred and the secular. And the problem with dividing things into sacred and secular is that so often what it boils down to as us and them. We are sacred. They are secular. We are holy. They are not. We are right. They are wrong. And it keeps us separated. And I don't think that's what Christ came to do. Christ came and died for all. I believe God uses what many of us consider secular, like the, like the arts, to call people to himself, to direct people's attention to himself. In fact, I invite you to write these passages down and check them out this week. We're not going to read the whole passage, but I'll just direct you there. If you read in Exodus chapter 35, verses 30 and following, there's these two guys called Bezalel and Aholiab. And Scripture talks about how God has given them skill. God has endowed them with power and strength and skill to create, to be artistic, to weave and to to make and to build this thing called the tabernacle, which is going to be God's house. And all the instruments and all the layout of the tabernacle points to God's salvation message. And how God is going to redeem all of creation. That's another whole big study, a wonderful study of how even the little hooks that hold the curtains all point to God. All point to a foreshadowing of Christ. And so these two guys are filled with the Spirit of God to create, to be artistic, Later on in Scripture, in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, again, I invite you to write this down and check it out. There's this guy named Huram Abi. 
And the interesting thing about Hurumabi is that he's not really a Jew. He's a half-Jew. His mother was Jewish. His father was not. He's very, very similar to a Samaritan. That was the big deal with why it was a good Samaritan, because Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish, half-something else. And so they weren't pure Jews. They were them, not us. And so this half-Jew is given skill to do all things artistic, to build not the tabernacle, but the temple. So God is giving skill and gifts to people to point them to himself through the secular, through the arts, through creativity, through things that I think it hasn't always been this way, but we consider today to be kind of base. But that's not to say that all art and all things secular are good. In fact, I, I really appreciate uh, Madeline Langle. You, do you know this author? She wrote A Wrinkle in Time. Anybody read that book? Oh, it was my favorite book growing up. Love that book. Um, no tesseracts or anything like that are going to happen today. But there's always hope. There, Madeline Langle, she wrote a book called Walking on Water. And in there, somebody asks her about Christian art. Is there such a thing as Christian art? She says, Christian art? Art is art. Paint is paint. Music is music. But then she goes on and she says, the, talking about how not all art is, is good art, she, she says that bad art is bad religion, no matter how pious the subject. And so... I think we need to think about that sometimes when we hear some of our Christian music on the radio. Whew. Bad art is bad religion, no matter how pious the subject. Not saying all Christian art is bad. No, I'm not saying it at all. We have wonderful Christian artists here today working and, and doing some wonderful stuff. So. But I think that we need to be careful that we don't draw those lines in broad brushstrokes and sweep everything in there and say that all things are good, necessarily. Um, and of course, we need to be discerning with what we use to talk to people about Christ. But hopefully, through the songs that we've been singing already and some of the songs that we'll hear and sing along together uh, as we continue our time in worship, you'll see that music is a powerful motivator. There are a lot of things that we consider secular in this world that I think instead of using this to thump people over the head all the time, if we started where people were, as Paul did and as Jesus did, maybe we would make a little more headway in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with other people. Oh, one more, one more example just to throw out there of how a bad how art can lead people astray. Do you, do you know there's a story of, of a commissioned art piece in the scripture? Com commissioned art piece. It was, all the people wanted it. In fact, they not only wanted it, they paid for it. They gave their gold and they gave it to a guy named Aaron. And Aaron took all their gold and threw it into the fire and <laughs> out popped this calf. So this wonderful commissioned piece of, of Jewish artwork was not exactly looked kindly upon by God as it was in the image of a bull. And 
And so not all art is good art and not all secular is bad. I think as we're talking about walking this line between sacred and secular, we have our orientation off. So often it's sacred on one side, secular on the other. And we, have to, we think we have to walk this line between the two. I think our orientation is off. I think what we need to do is change the axis and have sick, secular and sacred. Secular is a place where we can start. Secular is a place where it is the stuff of every day around us. When we talk to God or we, or we talk about God to people, that is a great place to start. Start with the secular because that's what people are familiar with. That's what Paul did. That's what Christ did. And then move to the sacred. Point people toward God. So instead of it being something that divides us, let's be on a trajectory that unifies us and moves us toward the one thing that is sacred. That one thing is sacred is God. The working of His Son, Jesus Christ. The power of His Holy Spirit. That is sacred. We're going to spend some time responding. And by way of leading us into this time of response, I'd like to pull out one more scripture. It's found in Paul's letter to the Romans. Probably many of you are familiar with it. It's kind of a cliche almost that we throw out. Uh, it's like a throwaway verse when, when we want to uh, reassure people. I never understood how telling someone who's family members just died using Romans 8.28 was supposed to be any kind of a, of a solace for them. But regardless, Romans 8.28, I think, is a, is a good guide as we enter into our response time. And so you can flip over to Romans if you want, a little bit to the right, or I'll read it. It'll be on the screen. Paul, writing to the Romans, says this. He says, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. And so I invite us as people that are called by God, whether you are on the path with Christ or whether you are seeking, God is calling you. God very much wants you to be in his family and to walk this line from secular to sacred. And so during this time, there are, there are about three or four different ways that we can respond to God's word. One of them is quickly being filled up. So one way we can respond to God's word is, is through allowing, really, as the scripture talked about, God's power and skill to move us to create. Our, our very name, artisan, comes from the idea in scripture that we are created to be creative. We are created in God's image, the creator God, to be creative. And so one way that you can respond to God's word today is through creating. And we invite you to come on up and, and find some space on the canvas here and continue to create and move from what many consider to be a, a secular thing, art, point people towards the sacred. Show me holy places not yet found. Another way that we can respond is through the table. And Jesus, again, uses what 
was very secular, the everyday stuff, the bread that they would have at every meal, the drink that they would have at every meal, the wine, the juice, the bread. Jesus uses this when he gathers his disciples together and says, when you do this, when you come together at table, which would be more than just once a week, he's talking every day. When you come together at table, when you break bread, this bread, it represents my body which will be broken for you. When, when you break and eat it, remember me. He, he takes the cup and he says, this cup, this represents the blood that I'm going to shed for you. It represents a new covenant, a new opportunity that you can have new life. And when you do this, when you gather at table, remember me. And he uses the everyday stuff to remind us of his good news. We'll also be, maybe some of the pastors will be over here just sitting and, and waiting. If anybody would like to just pray, it would be an appropriate time to come over and, and just pray. And it might be something you're going through or someone you know is going through. Maybe there's a time that you just need and want to praise God for something that he has done in your life, and something he's brought you through. We invite you to come on over to the side and, and, uh, and pray with us. And the last way that we're going to respond, again, is in a way that many people would consider to be secular. But it's through music and the music that we are playing this week uh, that's been written by the Black Crows. Definitely, I don't think anyone would consider them a Christian band. But listen to the lyrics as you, as you read them. Hear what it's saying about being set free. About going to a, a different place. And so let's bow our hearts and pray and enter into our time of responding to God's word. Father, thank you for this time that we've shared together in your word. Thank you for, I, I believe, really correcting our course changing our orientation from a us, them, a secular and sacred, and putting us on this path where we can see the creativity and the beauty and the world around us as a way that we can talk to people about Christ and move from the secular and point to the sacred. Father, we realize and celebrate that the sacred is you, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, that's represented by this earthly stuff of bread and juice and wine. We thank you. Would you move our hearts closer to you? Would you draw us from, from the secular to the sacred, to your heart? Lord, it is in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.